0: My name's Robin Addison, I'm a nurse in the emergency department at Providence in Everett. I'm also the clinical coordinator for our BEST team, which is um, our biocontainment evaluation and specialty treatment team. This is a team that um, came about as a result of the Ebola outbreak in 2015. We thought seeing as how there had been cases that had made it to the US, we should be prepared in case of um, high consequence infectious disease making its way to Everett. My name's Andrea
1: Leedy. I'm a clinical nurse specialist. We had had conversations and a test page for our best team activation earlier in the afternoon. And um, so my phone had already gone off earlier in the day with this test page. So I was pulling back the covers, getting ready to climb into bed, and, and my phone went off for what looked like a best team activation. And I thought, oh my gosh, twice in one day for a test page but it looked different. Um, And I read it a couple of times and realized, oh, I need to call in. Something is actually happening. So I called in and sure enough, we were receiving a patient I'd been instructed to meet at our biocontainment suite. And yeah, work clothes went back on and headed out the door for what at the time we didn't know how long we would be gone or really what we would be encountering.
2: From the Providence Institute for Human Caring, this is the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. In January of 2020, a man was admitted to the Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett, Washington, a city tucked on the edge of the Puget Sound at the northern edge of Metro Seattle. He became the first COVID positive patient in the United States. On today's program, we'll talk with two of the nurses who cared for him, as we reflect on nursing's role in what was not yet a pandemic, when Robin Addison and Andy Leedy first met their patient.
0: So the evening that he came in, I'd actually worked all day and come home and was just getting ready to uh, take a glass of wine and just relax for my evening when Sarah gave me a call and said, Robin, I think we have to open the unit. Um, So needless to say, I put my clothes back on and came back to the hospital.
2: Were you shocked to get that message. I mean, certainly you couldn't have expected that the hospital in Everett would be the first one to receive a COVID positive patient in the U.S.,
0: I was very shocked. Interestingly enough, we'd had a meeting of our um, best team leadership just that afternoon. I think that was on a Monday. Uh, So less than six hours prior, we'd had a meeting of our team and had brought up, oh, did you know there's that new disease in Wuhan? Um, And somebody had cracked a joke saying, yeah, you know, it's not going to be Ebola that gets us. It's going to be something like this. So I because we live on the Pacific Rim here, I had totally expected that the first case in North America would come somewhere in the west and Western Canada or down through the Western United States because there's so much travel back and forth from Asia from here. I was very surprised that it was Everett, though.
2: In your hospital?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: What does the room look like that you had to open up?
0: So we have a three-room suite dedicated for um, high-consequence infectious disease. It consists of a patient care room, which looks like any other patient care room. And in fact, when we're not operational, it is used as a regular patient care room. Uh, the difference being that there's a connecting door that goes into a clean a clean room, which contains all of our equipment. It has screen uh, some computer screens, it has... Um, our PPE that we wear things like that it also has a large window that looks into that patient care room the idea being that if we have a um, have a patient in there there's always somebody who is watching the nurse looking after that patient So we have that room, and then next to that, we have a dedicated small lab area. So lab tests can actually be done right on site so that we're not having to move potentially highly infectious materials through the hospital.
2: Why is it important that someone be watching the nurse?
0: When you're dealing with high-consequence infectious disease, it's really important that donning and doffing your PPE is done properly, carefully, and under controlled circumstances. Uh, They discovered that In Texas during the Ebola outbreak in 2015, one of the things that they discovered is that the nurses that got sick did so because they'd contaminated themselves somehow. They either touched something or touched themselves when donning or doffing their PPE or... They just got contaminated. So because of that, we have a person whose job it is to watch the nurse in the room, and number one, make sure that they're safe because the PPE that we wear for something like ebola is very hot and very uncomfortable so you have issues with you know heat exhaustion and things like that you've got to watch for but additionally they make sure that they're not brushing up against the patient or against equipment to contaminate themselves
2: at everett did you have any instances of self-contamination no congratulations
0: thank you yeah we're very proud of the fact that we had no instances of contamination and nobody got sick with that one patient.
2: That's really great news. Yeah. Yeah. So I want you to cast your mind back to that day, if you can. You mentioned that you had had a meeting earlier in the day. When you heard you had a patient, what were you feeling as you're getting dressed again to go back into work, as you're driving into work, as you're walking back into the hospital? I'm trying to figure out what is in the back of your head. Is it all about the incredible work that you have in front of you, or is there room for you to be frightened?
1: I think that's a great question. Um, You know, our minds can go uh, in multiple directions all at the same time. And for myself, um, I thought about a couple of things. One, I had to go tell my 16-year-old that I was Headed in on a best team call, and she is not a huge fan that I'm on that team. It seems frightening to her, so to have to tell her that um, was just, you know, how do I break this gently? You know, don't worry, everything's okay. Uh, you can text me if you need to, like you know, just the reassurance there. Um, you know, mom to mom to daughter. Um, the other thing that crossed my mind was um, just the how vastly incredible this situation was, just almost um, a little bit mind boggling. And um, the week prior, I had been in Anniston, Alabama, and working with the Center for Disaster Preparedness, and this particular um, disease process had been discussed there. And um, as I'm I'm driving in, I'm thinking to myself, Andy, (laughs) don't screw up, a lot of people are gonna be watching you and this is what you're trained for. So uh, no pressure or anything uh, to get in there and do it right. <laughs> but um, that is exactly what we did and that is exactly what we had done, which is plan, prepare, train, train again, uh, look at it from every angle and every possibility. And and while it was just this very big mind boggling, um, almost exciting experience that was coming, I really felt confident that Sarah and Robin and Dr. Diaz, um, had collaborated and and planned for us to be safe. So I wasn't frightened in that regard, just, uh, you know, you didn't know it was on the other side of the door yet.
2: Robin, what about you?
0: Um, I know for me, certainly, I had no fears in terms of the patient care aspect of things. Um, I know that I've got a great team that I work with, um, and I know that we had we had drilled to look after a patient. So that part of things I was not worried about. There's always an aspect of anxiety just around, you know, my goodness, this is a new and un- previously unheard of thing that we're going to be looking after. But the basic principles of looking after an infectious patient don't change regardless of what the underlying disease is, which is sort of reassuring. My biggest concern was sort of the logistics of it. Uh, We had had a drill probably three weeks prior with the community on looking after looking after a high-consequence infectious disease patient. In that particular case, it had been an Ebola patient that we'd we done. But, um, you know, discussing, we'd done this big tabletop drill with uh, EMS and the uh, Northwest Response Network and the providers and the hospital administration, a whole bunch of people to discuss how, how we would go about a bringing a patient into us and then b transferring them out if that was necessary. So I was kind of nervous to see if the um, issues that we encountered during this tabletop drill would arise during a real thing which fortunately they didn't actually. It was remarkably um, easy to get him uh, in the walk-in clinic that the the patient went to, did a great job of isolating and, um, you know, informing the health district and so on and so forth. And then they did a great job of collaborating with EMS and with us to arrange a safe arrival of this patient when they decided he needed to be hospitalized.
2: That's remarkable, if for no other reason than it was a novel case. Exactly. I, I want to talk about that for a moment, the difference between treating the first patient and the 100th patient. There's been a learning curve with this disease process, and certainly your treatment has changed over that year. Were you expecting that, that you're going to learn about it as you are doing the work?
1: I think one of the things about uh nursing care is or profession I should say is that we are ever changing uh, on a dime spur of the moment um, I giggle a little bit about how you know for as as quickly as our profession changes darn if these nurses sometimes we're really resistant to change <laughs> but truth be told change happens very quickly for us uh, on the day to day sometimes the hour to hour this was just on a huge scale a huge scale. So um, I think adaptability and flexibility is something that we um, have embraced as a profession. We just really put it to the test.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I would add that the principles don't change the way that you accomplish those principles, I think, in a lot of ways. Certainly looking after an infectious person. That's the way you accomplish those principles where the flexibility needs to be changed. You know, what is the PPE this week? you know, have are we wearing one mask or are we wearing a p an n ninety five or a surgical mask or a cloth mask or two masks or whatever? The principles never really change for looking after somebody. It's the nuts and bolts of how you get to it.
2: I want to ask you about the practice of nursing in this remarkable circumstance, and were you able to build rapport with your patient?
0: Absolutely, absolutely.
2: Can you tell me about that?
0: So the gear that we use is definitely a barrier to building a rapport. You know, we show up, we've got gowns on, we've got a capper over our head. So we're speaking through a fan. We have a mask on. Um, So really all the patient is seeing of us is our eyes. But having said that, you you can still talk to the patient. You can still have conversations. um, You can touch the patient, you can, you know, you can hold his hand or whatever it is that, you know, you feel like you need to do, we had to modify some of our communications with him just because we, with the first patient, we were spending... Uh, sort of as little time in the room as we could but we were still able to converse with him and you know talk about family and hobbies and just sort of general life type stuff which makes a big goes a long way to building a rapport and when you look after somebody you know when you've got one patient for the length of time that we looked after him you absolutely build a rapport
2: how was his mood
0: He's a tough man. He um, was nervous. He was definitely nervous about being there. But um, he was very friendly, very polite, um, and dealt with the isolation of being in that unit incredibly well, I think.
1: Part of our discipline or our training as emergency nurses is that you find those little pieces, those little nuggets that you can connect with a person quickly and deeply because they need to trust you and you need to know that you can communicate back and, and forth and and have a bond. Um, so for Robin and I, fortunately we've got years and years of of doing that with a multitude of um, diverse populations. So um, I think Robin described it really well talking about our people PPE being a barrier, Um, and in this case, uh, to safely bring um, our patient in, there were additional um, PPE barriers for him as well, so we're talking through our equipment, trying to talk through his equipment, Um, and as you can imagine, that probably feels like quite a spectacle. Um, But Robin and I were able to just hone in right away on... um, tell me about your family and tell me about your pets. And do you have any pictures? Thank goodness for technology and iPhones, (laughs) because we were able to look at video of things that were (laughs) special and important in his world. Um, We were able to talk about, you know, those meaningful things that make us who we are uh, and create some comfort and some calming to then get down to the taking care of the issues at hand. And I, I think that we were able to do that and do that quickly.
2: I think you'll take this as a compliment, but it sounds like pretty normal nursing care to me. It sounds like you all did absolutely the right things in extraordinary circumstances.
1: I hope that your perspective or your observation is exactly correct. I hope we treat everyone this way. Right with warmth and dignity and connection and collaboration between both the nurse and the patient and having them feel comfortable while we do so. Um, it was an extraordinary circumstance for sure, but uh, I, I hope you're right. I hope that's exactly what it was.
2: I'm talking to Andy Leedy and Robin Addison, two of the nurses who cared for the first COVID positive patient in North America. Andy and Robin, do you have any advice for nurses of the future?
0: Well, I know I certainly, I look back at things that I would have done differently for myself um, during the first uh, month or so of the pandemic. And I think that self-care is incredibly important. And I think that a lot of people forgot to look after themselves um, during the early time of the pandemic. And I think that we are seeing some of the results of that lack of self-care now in the amount of burnout that we're seeing amongst nursing staff. So if I had it to do again, I would have made a point of um, realizing that I'm not all important and I don't need to be at the hospital 24 hours a day or 20 hours a day or 16 hours a day. That I could go home and do what I needed to do at home to make sure that I was fresh and able to come back and respond with all my energy the next day when I came back to work. So that would be my biggest piece of advice. And my second piece of advice to anybody dealing with a pandemic is to try and look at the bigger picture. And the small picture is what brand of PPE we're wearing and what order we put it on in today. The bigger picture is how do we look after these patients safely and effectively.
1: I can tell you that um, Robin was an unyielding strong force in holding the rest of us up. Um, and in fact, she made sure that the rest of us looked after ourselves and uh, We might ought to have looked after our fearless leaders just a little bit more, but, um, absolutely, absolutely, um, trust your team, uh, believe that you come back a better, more well-rested, well-rounded, and, um, competent person if you go home and take care of yourself for a little while, um, but even Prior to that, I think that it is important that we remember to um, plan and prepare so that we can trust our training and not have the fear and the anxiety over the actual nursing care work itself. Um, But do exactly as Robin said. Be able to stand back and look at those bigger picture pieces. I have one gentleman here today, but how am I going to sustain when I have 47 gentlemen here? And how do I put that plan into action on a big scale? So, um, I very much support what Robin said. Absolutely. So grateful for the time she did spend here in this hospital, making sure that everything went the way it should and looking out for the rest of us. But, um, we might ought to have looked out for Robin just a little bit more.
2: Hmm. Let's talk about scaling up from one to a hundred. What is that like for staff?
0: You know, we were really lucky um, we really were on honestly looking after that first patient was an incredible wake up call for the hospital. And for the Providence system, I think we were really lucky to have had that fellow come in here because he went home at the end of January and really the world did not change a whole lot for the month of february february was a very normal month up until i think the last weekend so we were able to have two or three weeks of meetings and discussions and okay so we've had one patient we know that this is going to get worse before it gets better what do we want to do about it so we were able to sort of talk our way through what we would do for when we had 47 or 100 or whatever it was we had patients so that was one thing that made a big difference was having that time to think through and prepare the other thing that made a big difference for us at this hospital specifically is our building we have a tower that was built within the last 10 years and one of the things that um they did when they were planning for this tower is they thought about pandemic and actually outfitted one of the floors in the tower with its own HVAC. Uh, um, so we're able to isolate an entire floor of the hospital can be our pandemic floor if need wow. be. And that was in fact, what we wound up doing.
2: And I know other hospitals have spent time and money um, retrofitting uh, rooms mm-hmm. uh, specifically for the COVID pandemic. So the fact that you had a floor already waiting for you is remarkable.
0: Yeah, we, we're we blessed and the people that um, planned this building, let me tell you, they did a great job <laughs> thinking ahead.
2: Let me ask you a little bit about the politics in the country. You know, there are people still who doubt the severity of this disease. And I'm curious what your reactions are to seeing that in the popular press.
1: Oh, goodness. I think that for me personally, I had to find a space of um, honoring and knowing what I believe to be true and what I've experienced and to understand um, from an educated and professional uh, nursing perspective um, that this illness is indeed real. Uh, and to be able to see it um, throughout a multitude of people, not just one individualized experience, but you know, many, many people who have um, dealt with this illness and the severity and the difference between each person. Um, I understand my perspective and my point of view. And um, while I would willingly share with anybody who was interested in asking, um, I have to respect that they have their own thoughts and views, and I can't, I can't let that hurt me. You know? um, it, it, I think it's okay to not agree. I just, I think it's a very um, touchy and uncomfortable situation to be in. And, and rather than feel the negativity of that, or the disappointments, or even sometimes what could potentially be feeling angry about it, uh, I just have to hold to what's true for me and what I know.
0: Yeah, I have to agree with you, Andy. Um, I I find it very disrespectful in a lot of ways and it makes me angry enough that I actually have taken numerous news blackouts over the last year just because I don't need that information in my life. I I know what the science shows and I know what the correct thing to do is. And I also know that I am not going to change anybody's mind by preaching at them. So I just remove myself from the situation, which may not be the best way to deal with it, but it works for me.
2: Put on your psychological PPE.
0: Exactly. Exactly. I I certainly would want to add that in our specific community, uh, we have received nothing but the biggest and best support uh, I could possibly imagine. Um, the, the community response certainly here has been overwhelmingly positive and heartwarming.
2: I'm glad to hear that.
0: And I, I really appreciate our Everett, the city of Everett, the count Snohomish County. I appreciate the way they've, they've um, reacted to the, to the uh, pandemic.
1: For me, there are two additional things that I would like to share. and One is um, our executive and senior leadership team. They brought us together in, um, in groups to discuss what could be or should be and how we move forward. And it was hearty discussion where everybody had a voice. Um, and I think that played into a big part of our success when we went from one to lots more than one. Um, and so I'm super grateful to be a part of the team that we have. Um, and, and Robin and I had this amazing experience with this wonderful gentleman who co- I couldn't have picked a better first patient, right? Um, but we have a A team of Mm -hmm. hundreds within this facility that continue to carry that mission and that work forward and care for our patients, not just um, our COVID positive patients, but all patients from our community that present to this facility uh, and do so tirelessly um, with a smile moving forward day in and day out for long periods of time and have not had that moment to go home and decompress and reflect and heal and then progress forward. They're still living it every day. So I think those are the two big pieces that I would want to call attention to.
2: Well, here's one guy in Missouri who's really, really grateful that you do the work that you do and that you did the work that you did, um, and you we were met with success, um, I'm, I'm so happy for you and for the outcome for your, that first patient. And um, thank you for the care that you give your patients.
1: Uh, thank you for having us, and you're incredibly welcome. It was an honor to be on that journey for sure. Absolutely.
2: Robin Addison is an RN in the emergency department at Providence Regional Medical Center, Everett, and the clinical lead for Best. The biocontainment evaluation and specialty treatment team. Andrea Leedy is a clinical nurse specialist in the emergency department. In addition to serving on the BEST team, Andy leads the emergency nursing residency at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett. Today's program is a part of our series that focuses on nursing during the WHO observance of the year of the nurse and midwife. To stay in the loop on upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter, where we're human underscore caring, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up to mark the end of Black History Month, we go into our archive to listen again to a powerful conversation from our very first podcast. That's in a minute. Stay with us. you're listening to the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. On Juneteenth, June 19th, 2020, we published the debut episode of this podcast. It featured two Providence staff members, two black women, friends, who with the rest of the country were reeling from the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the protests that followed. This is how we began that first episode. Hello, I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for spending time with us today. As the nation was just beginning to emerge in parts from the restrictions put in place to stem the spread of COVID 19, another viral outbreak took hold of us. A deadly story we've seen before repeated itself, this time in Minneapolis, this time for George Floyd.
3: Please. Please, please, I can't Bro, look at him. He's not responsible right yes. now, bro. Check, check for a post. bro. are you serious? Check gonna post, him oh, here with that on Let, me, head, see let me see a post.
4: bro. don't, you don't matter. You know how oh, of neck. You on him, bro? Yeah. You really That's just awesome. killed that You baby. just really killed That's that man.
3: man. 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 man.
1: man. man.
4: Call in the National Guard. Call me. You have to dominate the streets. You can't let what's happening happen. Well, dominate God, the street. Hey! Do do yeah! shooting versus are shooting at each other. Today, let them do it. I filed an amended complaint that charges former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin
3: with murder in the second degree. <laughs>
4: Imagine you pressing down on something, eight minutes, that's telling you I can't breathe, that's begging for their life, and you keep pressing, what kind of mentality is that? We have permitted people to become officers of the law that ought to be somewhere else in society.
2: One of the insidious qualities of racism is its ability to convince some of us that it's been handled, somehow taken care of, solved. We've had this conversation before, right? Do we really need to have it again? For Americans in the first quarter of the 21st century, the sad answer is yes. Yes, we do have to have the conversation again, and we have to have it smarter and more effectively and accompanied by actions that speak louder than our words. We have to confront this most American of all social ills, name it and fix it. We have read that American racism is a public health crisis, permeating the society completely and lethally. We've heard that the task of dismantling racism falls to white people, it's been said that listening is the first step. So in this hour, we want to listen. We've invited two of our colleagues to join us and to allow us to listen in on their conversation. Two black women, friends, reflecting on George Floyd's killing and the aftermath, the protests, the counter-protests, The violence, the fires, the attempts at dialogue, the calls for justice and systemic change, and the hope, the blessed hope, that we may one day be healed of these wounds we inflict on each other and on ourselves and on our children. Our desire is that listening today to Victoria and Jeremy may point us to the cure, to the healing wells and to the bomb this nation so desperately needs.
3: So my name is Victoria Johnson. I am a Quality Compliance Specialist here at Providence Elder Place. I am 26 years old and I live in Seattle, Washington. And today I will be having a wonderful in-depth conversation with my coworker, my friend, my work mom, um, Jeremy Edmonds.
4: Well, thank you, Victoria, and um, as Victoria intimated, Victoria is also my work friend, my colleague, and she is my work daughter. I'm Jeremy Edmonds. I'm a 58-year-old black lesbian who lives on Vashon Island, and I work for Providence Elder Place as a marketing and intake representative.
3: Wonderful. So. Oh, this conversation. Are we ready?
4: Yeah, am. Yeah. Let's get it. Let's go, as they Let's say. Let's get it.
3: Let's go. <laughs> so um, we are, we're recording in a, a very sensitive time um, given COVID. And then now we're seeing a, not even national, but a global uprising um, as a result to some of the things that we're seeing related to police brutality and the deaths of armed citizens. Okay. Um, I'm 26 and you're 58. So right. we we have some decades between us. Um, right. But somehow I, I feel like our experiences are very, very similar. So I would like to ask you um, point blank, when was the first time that you can recall that the color of your skin was been against you?
4: Wow. Um, my earliest <laughs> recollection, there's two. And my earliest recollection, I was seven. And
3: you wow, You were a child.
4: I was, in Pauly, Connecticut. I'll never forget it. This is a young kid, little kid, same grade as me. I'll never forget his name. His name was Howard LeHue, And Howard used the N-word and called me the N-word. And I had never heard the N-word in my life. I didn't wow. even know what it was. So I went home that night, having had my altercation with Howard. And I told my dad, who at the time um, was... Uh, chairman of the board of the first minority-owned and operated bank in the entire country. He's also the first black insurance executive of Travelers Insurance. Um, wow. He's also the first selectman, which is basically mayor and head of the town council for any town in New England. So I come from a long line of people. And I have a picture of my dad giving the black power sign and black handshake with Jesse Jackson. This is something my family has always believed in. Here I am back with Howard Leahy and I said to my dad, I said, daddy called me a word that rhymes with wig. And <laughs> I said, oh, that's that's a, funny, yeah. It's okay. Cause that's the innocence of being a child. That's how that gets translated or how you ingest that type of hatred. The first, the first, like many of us is you're completely confused. You have no right. idea that your experience is so much vastly different than anybody else's. Right. So, um, Back to Howard, my dad gave me some um, appropriate tactics to use with the bully, which is basically what I did, and that resulted in me shoving him through a snow fence. I, I <laughs> did it to be mean. I did it because he hurt me, and I wanted to show him that he did. Um, and then the next time was exactly seven years later. I was a wow. freshman in high school, beginning my athletic career. Um, as a track athlete, which I was really successful at. But anyway, I got told by a classmate, an upperclassman, junior or senior girl, her name was Gina. And Mm -hmm. she said that jungle bunnies and and porch monkeys don't run long distances. And there aren't any reason for me to be out here running cross country because I was black and we all know black people don't run distances. And I remember the, how I felt, which was a whole lot of rage and pain and vulnerability and shaking. And I remembered thinking that I had just seen the thriller in Manila, the famous fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. Just call I, me out. I hear you, because you're young. <laughs> <laughs> so I basically ended up clocking her and and I freaked out because I, she, was un, she was momentarily unconscious. And it also helped me to realize at that moment that responding in violence wasn't gonna be the way to solve anything. Just because you hurt my name and called me names wasn't reason for me to react that way it did give me a lot of school a lot of schoolyard respect I didn't have to go through those things again but do you remember a time Victoria when you were confused by racism and when racism showed for you how old were you
3: um you know I had a very similar upbringing um as you my father was very um pro-black was very black power um and he i remember he would wash my face in the morning um and just look at me and say you look like a brand new penny because my skin and it was just it was a really um comforting moment but i think a lot of it had to do with my hair i didn't necessarily understand why my hair wasn't straight and i didn't understand why all the other girls got to wear their hair down but i had to wear my hair in a braid or in a ponytail Um, and it wasn't until a little bit later that I realized that, um, society still views our hair in its natural state as unprofessional. Um, and so that, that really, (laughs) that kind of took the cake for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I do remember having just girls be really mean to me and I grew up in a upper, an upper middle class, I would say higher class area, um. I was one of the only black girls in my school. There was one other um, black individual. Um, He was a young boy and I believe he was Nigerian. Um, But people actually were really nice to him Hmm. because he was good at sports. And I did not want to run. I wanted to eat cookies and be a normal girl. And I never really was able to do that. and then I also kind of learned as I got into high school that I, I didn't sound, I guess, like all the other black girls. Or I didn't, you know, talk or dress the way that they did. Um, and in turn, that actually resulted in not being black enough for black people, but not white enough for white people.
4: And Hence the term, hence the term Oreo.
3: You know, I, I had a, a guy actually break up with me and call me a pretentious Oreo. As an insult. So, um, been there, done that. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like the moment that was really life changing actually didn't happen until I was a little bit older. And it wasn't until I started seeing more evidence that I am not safe in my own skin doing everyday things. Um, right around the time of the Oscar grant, did you ever watch Fruitvale Station? Yes. OK, so right around the time of the Oscar Grant, um, the Oscar Grant shooting and then or the Oscar Grant death. And then you go into, you know, the Trayvon Martins and then the Sandra Bland. And so it, it's been going on for so long that I began to have moments where I realized that, oh, my goodness, you know, there this isn't just some person who just died. Like these are almost systematic or almost, you know, not even planned, but very intentional in a way. And I think what it resulted for me was it turned into a a form of confusion. And what often happens with confusion is sometimes there's a little bit of rage. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would definitely say that as I've gotten older, I'm definitely more sensitive to it because I wasn't raised in an area where, you know, things were, you know, I was taught about, the color of my skin or our even our history i didn't i didn't even learn about that until i got older and i'm actually like related to black history um i believe i told you so um i do have a family member who is you know a very well-known inventor and so to to know that okay you know i i come from this family i come from this history but it's constantly minimized or at any point in time, I could be unsafe for going to the grocery store or even for walking my dog is immensely scary. Um, And it's something that I feel like I'm trying to work through. But what's interesting is you're 58 Mm -hmm. and you've had very similar experiences to, you know, what I've had being Mm -hmm. 26. Um, Is there anything that you, would you say that it's gotten better? It's gotten worse? It's just kind of Is what is is your overall feeling of just and and I want to ask it from the standpoint of civil unrest. mm -hmm. So we are, especially as Black women, we are doers. We do a lot of things, especially out of love. You taught me that. Um, We do a lot of things out of love. So how does it feel being a a Black woman operating out of love and knowing that you have so much to give and you just want to take care of people and seeing this happening?
4: Mm. Well, first of all, it's a great question, and I just would like to say what I'm struck at, both figuratively and literally, is that here we are, two women on the same screen, um, one gay, one straight, we're both different generations, and we've both had the same experience, which on the superficial level answers your question that really things haven't changed That would be a superficial answer. But that's not really the honest answer. The honest answer is yes and no. Yes, things have changed markedly for many people. Um, We have the LGBTQ movement built on the structure and the bones of the civil rights movement of the 60s, which was, I was born right when, um, let's see, I'm 58. I was born right after or during segregation, when segregation was being... um, driven away and taken taken out. Um, Probably not the right word, but you guys get the idea. Back to um, your question about the yes and no. I do believe that things have changed. But when I am faced with you still feeling the way you do 30 years after I was on this planet, when I look at the injustices that we are still suffering, and let's be clear, it took the collective society at large the world to be upset about the murder of this black man as the video showed someone on his neck for eight minutes and 43 seconds. The sad part is, is that it took a video of such depravity to get people to believe what black people have been saying for so many hundreds of years. It's like, well, sarcastically black folks will tell you the best thing that ever happened to black people was the invention of the iPhone or the Mm. camera phone, because that meant that what we were experiencing couldn't be denied any further. Right. We were were a little naive in that because sometimes things were denied even with irrefutable evidence. But this leads me to something that a really simple analogy I heard regarding racism that really kind of characterized and crystallized for me what we're experiencing. And that is, is that racism is a lot like dust. Mm-hmm. Like, like dust Racism is invisible Like dust race is um, Racism is permeable everywhere Like dust You don't see it until you're absolutely Physically, emotionally And spiritually choking on it That is mm-hmm. when we all know that racism exists Like dust When you shine a light in a dusty room The, the sunbeam of light Is what shows you where the dust is We, mm-hmm. need, that, we need that Sunlight of society and that sunlight of equality to shine on this dusty room we have of racism. Right. At the same time, also like dust, racism is something that you perpetually have to keep at. It's not something Ooh. we've learned this yes. over and over again. One time you wipe away the dust. Okay, it's clear now, but guess what? Dust and racism will come back. Right. I think that if there's anything that I could impart on all of the people to the white folks who now realize what is truly happening and want to be allies, it would it would be this. What I would say is recognize that you're dealing that. Well, let me start again. I just celebrated this past weekend my 14th year of sobriety.
3: Congratulations.
4: Thank you very much. And a lot of what I've learned and the lessons I've learned have come through the uh, prism of uh, my recovery and sobriety. And one of the things that I've learned is that there is no statue of limitations that I can put on people as to when they have to ascribe and stop buying my BS. In other words, I was an alcoholic for many years and I caused a lot of collateral damage for those who tried to hang in there and be with me. And it wasn't until I got sober that those relationships changed. Point being is that with regard to the situation of racism in this country, my ask of people, of of white people, is that they sit with being uncomfortable, that they sit in that, marinate in that, and understand what that means to feel that uncomfortable. Because it is only through pain I have learned in my recovery that we grow. If we were all happy all the time, we would never grow. We would never grow because you wouldn't know the difference between being unhappy and happy. You would have nothing to compare it to. The same goes with this uncomfortable feeling that I need people to sit in. I need you to sit in it and understand. And the last thing I'd like to say, the most important thing is, or a very important component is, as you sit in this uncomfortable feeling and as you try to not stay there and to reach out and to say to, to Black people, hey, I really understand what you've been through, or I'm really trying to understand what you've been through, please, please don't recoil if that hand is slapped. If, if the person on the other end does not receive your grace, Right. It, just means, it just means that grace isn't able to be received, not yet. And my ask of white people would be that they keep extending their hand. This is the only way it's going to change. Right. Is if Is All begin to forgive ourselves and each other. And that's where it has to start. So I ask and my prayer going forward will be for mm-hmm. patience and that people understand um, that if the hand is slapped, please extend it again. Don't. Please keep extending that olive branch,
3: especially what we're seeing in the news and people um, protesting is it's really just reaching out for human fellowship, just asking and giving the opportunity for people to step into our shoes, because it's not it's not an easy shoe to fit into. Um, And like you said, it, it is very uncomfortable, but your greatest moments of growth come from your discomfort. You, and I was talking with my mom about this. Um, we, I was asking her, you know, what happens if I make a mistake, if I do this thing? And her, her advice to me was, it's not a mistake. It's a lesson. We are casual dusters. We dust whenever there is company coming over. Like there are times where we address racism but we do it not with the intention of learning or understanding we're doing it just so that it doesn't leave a nasty impression on what we want other to others to perceive us as and i think that's my frustration with it is i'm a very big doer i am very big if you walk the walk you should talk the talk you know if you're going to do something you should my grandmother was very big on your word is your bond you stand by it And so what's interesting and what we've seen is, and I do actually want to touch on um, what the phone or what technology has essentially done for um, bringing to light these police brutality cases and showing what it's like to just want something so simple as basic life and to be able to do, go to the grocery store and pick up formula or pick up, you know, trash bags or whatever the case may be is almost a fear that we can't even leave our house to do anything. And there, it came from somewhere. And I think I'm frustrated because I want to know where it came from. I want to know why, you know, we've, we've decided that, that one life means more than another life or it's okay for people in this uniform. And one thing that I struggled with was there are a lot of people who do see Black Lives Matter, um, as an organization they see it as a terrorist organization Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And i had a very in-depth conversation about no it's not a terrorist um organization We're, we're really just marching for a chance to have a normal everyday life that's really all we're asking where we don't get pulled over where we don't get tased for not getting out of a car Um, There were two college students in Atlanta who, you know, the the young man actually was on the news and said he had the piece of the taser left in his back for eight hours. Can you imagine that? Eight hours. And you and I think for me, my frustration um, and being 26, so I'm happy that in a way like we have these videos. But at the same time, I'm so mad. I'm so mad. And it's hard not to be in a state of rage, or to be in a state where you're almost jaded. Um, and my and I, I think we've gone kind of down this road a little bit. But one thing that annoys me is that when we try to get passionate about it, we're written off as angry black women. Yeah. We're angry for having any passion, whether it's for. And you and I both work in healthcare. We both work with a vulnerable population of elderly. Um, so being vulnerable and, or actually being advocates for these vulnerable populations or for these vulnerable people, or even for the work that we do, sometimes it can come off as being an angry black woman. And I feel like that's so, that's so unfair because we just, we care. We, like I said, we're women, we operate out of love. And as black women, we, we especially operate from a place of deep love and, witnessing sorrow consistently and not wanting to see that again. So that's another thing that I I would love your experience on a oh, little bit.
4: So many questions. So many thoughts. I know. I'm sorry. A, a little time. A couple things that I wanted to talk on about what you just addressed. It it sounds sure. to me, if I could put it in two words, it would be describing the experience of everyday racism and finding us, you know, uh, what black folks go through every single day before we even get up to get into an office. There's a thousand things that we've got to consider. Right. And to your point of, ang- of of angry black women, one of the things that when I first came to Elder Place, I remember a manager speaking to me and saying, um, it's great that you're here and you're going to be the um, and helping us gra- d- diversify who we enroll in Elder Place. And that's a, a great thing. And initially, when I joined Elder Place, some was, it was shared with me that they thought that it would be hard for me to interact with different ethnicities because, right, maybe Asian folks wouldn't want to talk to me, maybe, you know, a whole myriad of people, but that I need to be prepared for that inevitability. Well, happily, I can say that's never happened. I have never had one elder ever say anything to me Uh, about my race or who I was. Mainly what it comes up is about my name more than anything else. Okay, fine. But really what I I wasn't prepared for was how many ways that I would have to stand in my truth and how many ways I would have to politely Uh, discuss things that are hard with folks that didn't see that what I was saying was a problem. I can't tell you how many emails I've had to write over again for the fact that if I said what I really wanted to say, which was always to advocate for the person I'm working with, it's never personal to the recipient of my email, but I've had to change how my tone is written in an email for just that that stereotype, that I don't want to be personified as an angry black woman because if that happens, nothing is going to get done. As I think back to George Floyd, the hardest thing about that video for me was that he was a, a man who, in his last breath, called for his mother. And I am a mother. I'm mm-hmm. a mother of a 20-year-old African-American male who's amazing and bright and kind and giving and lives for his community. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I told this to him, that when I always, when I had my son, I wanted to raise a good human being. I wanted to raise a person that would be part of society and not take away from the things in society, not be a drain on society, but just be a good person in society. Right. I have told him this, that he has far exceeded anything I had ever dreamed for him in becoming the man that he is. You've met Noah, he's an amazing person. Mm -hmm. So I say all this to say that as a mom, watching George Floyd cry for his mother, when he was being murdered, told me that I never, ever, ever get to say, okay, my son is raised, my son is good, and I can send him out in the world and let him be the adult and the man that he is intended to be, that he wants to be. Watching that man die in front of me, crying for his mother taught me that I have to worry about my child until I draw my last breath. It's a lot different of a worry than maybe some of um, the white moms and dads that I know have to deal with. You know, all kids struggle, all kids go through their stuff, but at some right. point in their life, you as a parent get to say, you know what, Johnny's good. He's got a wife, great job, he has a home, he's doing great. I don't have to worry about him. I can just work worry about me or something else. I will, right. never, I will never have that luxury.
2: We've been listening to a conversation between Jeremy Edmonds and Victoria Johnson, two of our Providence colleagues from our debut episode of this podcast, published in June of 2020. You can hear more of their conversation and explore our other early shows on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. Our deep thanks to Jeremy and Victoria for helping us begin this podcast in a powerful way. We're grateful. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring on Twitter at human underscore caring. Follow us there to stay connected to information on guests and upcoming programs And it's a good way to let us know what you're interested in and what we should be paying attention to. Stories in our oral history project are edited by Mike Addis and Allison Jakes and produced by Melody Fawcett and Scott Acord. Our executive producer is Mike Drummond. We have research help from Heather Martin, Sarah Vescuso, Amanda Schwartz, and Seema Bakhta. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening be well.